I'm delighted that you're here and I hope you've got a Bible with you and that you are willing to take that Bible and turn to the book of Revelation, if you will. I encourage you to turn to Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2 is where our beginning point will be in our study this morning and for the next several Sunday mornings as we work through looking at letters to the seven churches of Asia. Revelation chapters 2 and 3 will be where those letters are recorded. And we're going to look at the first seven verses here of chapter 2 here in just a moment. But let's give some introductory information to these letters to these seven churches. As we read these letters, we're going to see that there are some churches were good churches. Commendation was given to them, but no condemnation. Like the church at Smyrna or Philadelphia. Could be labeled as good churches. Then there were some churches that had good and bad in them. There was commendation, but there's also condemnation. There are several churches that fit that bill. Ephesus that we're about to study. Pergamos and Thyatira and Sardis. There was one church that was bad. There was condemnation given, but no commendation given. So we have a situation like this. If we were visiting in Asia Minor and we're looking for a church where we want to identify, we want to be a part of one of these churches, we know nothing about them and we visit with one and we say, you know, this seems to be a good church. And then we go to another one and the report is this one's pretty bad. And then here's one that's good and bad, another one good and bad. Here's another one that's good. Here's another one good and bad and another one that has some good and bad. And most of us would not want to be, or would like to be rather, in a church that's good, all good. Nothing said wrong about that church. We're looking for a church that's all good, where there's no condemnation at all. No criticism could be offered. None of us want to be in a church where there's nothing good could be said about it. The only thing you can say about it is something they're doing wrong. I don't want to be a part of that church. We know the kind of church we'd like to be a part of. But in reality, most of us were probably going to be in a church where there is some good and bad. There are some things commendable to be said about the church, a lot of good things. But there may also be some criticism to be offered, especially from the Lord himself. Let's look at chapter 2, verses 1 to 7. Let's talk about the church at Ephesus, found in verses 1 to 7. Here's a church that got a letter. And here's what the letter said. It says you've lost what you once had. Verse 4 says, you've left your first love. In other words, the letter is saying, your fire is gone. There's a lot of good things about this church. But his criticism is, your fire is gone. So let's talk this morning about a church that left its first love, or when the fire is gone. Could that be this church where we're a part? It has good things about it, has good rich history, but maybe the fire is gone. Could that be said of us? That we left our first love. Let's read verses 1 to 7 now. To the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things says, He who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. And you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars. And you have persevered and have patience, and have labored for my name's sake, 
and have not become weary. Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from whence you are fallen, repent and do your first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. But this you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, to him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Let's start with verse 1, an obvious place to start. And what I learned from verse 1 is the Lord sees all and he knows all about this church. To the angel of the church at Ephesus write, these things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. And so I'm learning from that that whatever is said, whether it be good or whether it be bad, is stated by one who holds the destiny of this church in his hand. This is not a passerby who observes, you know what, I think that's a great church. It's not a visitor who said, you know what, I see a lot of bad in that church. And I think there's a lot to be said critical of this church. But this is stated by the one who holds the destiny of the church in his hand. What would the Lord say about this church at El Bethel? That's what's important. Not what a visitor may say, not what the members may say, not what the preacher may say or the elders may say, but what does the Lord say about this church? And what I'm understanding is the Lord has full knowledge of the inner workings of the church at Ephesus. And so does the Lord have all knowledge of all the inner workings of the church at El Bethel too. He knows where the weaknesses are. He knows where the strengths are. And so we learn some things from verses 1 to 7. Let's start with the history of this church. I don't know about you, but if I were visiting around in a new area looking for a church that I want to be a part of, and there's several options. There's seven churches that I want to visit. And the first one I come to is the church at Ephesus. I might want to investigate a little bit about its history because history has a great deal to do with the church. But that I may want to know some of the people who've been there. I don't know about you, but if I was knew something of some of the preachers that had been at this church. Maybe that'll tell me something about the strength of that church. What kind of preaching have they been exposed to? Maybe they've had a weak diet for 20 years, or maybe they've had a strong diet for 20 years. Who are some, does, does this church even have elders? Has it had elders? Did, was it guided in the right direction? Were they warned of dangers at some point? What are some things that started with this church in the midst of when this church started? Why did it start? at this particular location. Let's talk about the rich history. This church has a rich history. And if you identify and become a part of the church at Ephesus, you're a part of a church that has a rich history. Ephesus, the city of Ephesus, was the fourth largest city of the Roman world. It had a population of a quarter of a million people. It's quite a large city. Paul went there and preached the gospel there, but he visited Ephesus briefly. So let's back up now in the book of Acts. We're not going to take the time to read every detail, but let's start in Acts 18. And in Acts 18, at the tail end of that second missionary journey, Paul makes a very brief visit there. We're not going to read this section. I just want you to trace with me some things that have happened at Ephesus. So before the church was planted there, Paul has a brief visit there just passing through. Well, we come to Acts chapter 18, the end part of that chapter now. And this was the same place, same city of Ephesus, where Aquila and Priscilla corrected Apollos. You remember Apollos being there 
And Apollos was teaching only the baptism of John, and he knew nothing of the baptism in the name of Christ. And Aquila Priscilla took him aside and taught him the way of God more perfectly. This happened at Ephesus. This is part of the background. Come to Acts chapter 19. When Paul comes back to Ephesus, he finds there's some, some disciples there. They're followers, but they only knew the baptism of John. They knew nothing about the Holy Spirit. And they'd only been baptized with the baptism of John. And so they had to be baptized in the name of the Lord. And they became disciples. And so they were baptized. They were 12 in number. There were many who were converted on the third missionary journey. Now I want you to notice beginning at verse 8, this was in the midst of controversy. Beginning at verse 8, he went into the synagogue and spoke boldly by the th space of three months concerning things of the kingdom of God. He began to preach and to teach and he, can, he continued for two years according to verse 10. And he worked unusual miracles, the text says. And there were exorcists who, who made an effort to call out demons, an unsuccessful effort. But I want you to notice at verse 17 that when it became known to the Jews and the Greeks dwelling at Ephesus, fear fell upon them all and the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified. Look at verse 20. So the word of God grew mightily and prevailed. A great multitude obeyed the gospel in the midst of all this controversy. Some of those that were converted were converted from their magical arts and they took and they burned their books. Remember that occasion? That happened right here at Ephesus. Paul stayed there according to chapter 20 and verse 31 when he later talked to the elders there. Yes, this church had elders. He said he'd been there for three years. He spent three years with them. He spent some time grounding this church. While we're in Acts chapter 19, now many had been converted there, but the idle craftsmen caused a riot. Remember the riot that took place? Where there was a great uproar and they began to cry out mightily, great is Diana of the Ephesians. That happened right here at Ephesus. Right here. Look at verse 28. Paul later met with the elders of the church at Ephesus. So there'd been a riot here over the preaching and teaching that Paul had done. Right in the midst of controversy over miracles. There was a multitude that was converted. There were the 12 there that were the original converts. But later Paul met with the elders there. In chapter 20 of the book of Acts. Met them at the island of Miletus. He warned them. He talked about the things he'd done in the past. I, I have not shunned to declare you to the whole counsel of God. So I know their rich history. They had had the kind of preaching that taught the whole truth of God and nothing was shunned. Paul didn't have an all positive diet, nor did he have an all negative diet either. He preached the whole counsel of God. He warned them about dangers in the future. After my departure, savage wolves will come in, not sparing the flock. He told them to watch. And he warned them. And he commended them to the word of his grace. Now he may have visited again, and I think that he did, after his release from his first imprisonment. I think there's evidence of two imprisonments at Rome. A later one was more of a dark dungeon of a prison. But he was released seemingly from the first imprisonment and took Timothy to Ephesus and left him there and moved on. So turn to 1 Timothy 1 and in verse 3. We learn two things from 1 Timothy 1 and verse 3. The text says that I urged you when I went into Macedonia to remain in Ephesus. I take from that that he dropped him off at Ephesus, leaves him there, and he went on into Macedonia. Well, that tells me two things. That Paul visited again after his imprisonment, and then Paul also, that Timothy later was a man who worked with the church. 
So what kind of preaching have they had? They've had the Apostle Paul there. He worked for a while, and Timothy was left there as one of the ministers to work with this church. They'd been taught by men who were godly men who were teaching the truth. Paul later wrote the book of Ephesians to this church, that great epistle on Christ and the church, about what it was to be saved, chapters 1 through 3, what it means to live as a saved person, chapters 4 to 6, was written to this church. What a rich history this church has had. So we're visiting with this church and we're thinking, we'd like to be a part of this church. Man, what a rich history it's had. I'm impressed so far with the rich history. But let's move on. Now I know something about the history. I want to know something about its strong qualities identified here. And so let's go to Revelation chapter 2 and begin at verse 2. Revelation chapter 2 and verse 2 said, I know your works. I know your works. Works are what they do in the service to the Lord. Haley observes that works may be either good or bad, and here they appear to be good. It's in a list of commendable things. I know your works, your labor, and your patience. I know your good works. What I'm learning from this is, this is an active church. I'm impressed so far, aren't you? I think I want to be a part of this church. Because I found a church that has a rich history, but I found a church that's active. The Lord himself says, I know your works. But that's not all that he mentions. He said, I know your labor. I know your works and your labor. The American Standard says your toil. Toil has to do with strenuous, wearing labor. Ray Summers suggests that toil lies deeper than works. The word translated toil has reference to an effort that produces work at the cost of pain. Oh, yes, they're working for the Lord, but they're even sacrificing to work for the Lord. They're involving pain to work for the Lord. What I'm learning from that is this is an aggressive church. Not only is it an active church, this is an aggressive church. No matter what pain they have to go through, how much effort it may take, how hard it may be, they're active in the work of the Lord. I'm impressed so far, aren't you? But we're not done. Look at verses 2 and 3. This is a patient church. I know your works, your labor, and your patience, he said. Verse 3, you have persevered and have patience. Three words. You're patient, you persevered, and you have patience. They are persistent in their toil. In other words, they're staying when the burden is heavy. Anybody can toil and labor when things are easy. But what if the burden gets real heavy? Are they going to stay in the midst of that and keep on working? And they did. Harkwriter said they didn't give up when things went bad or when someone criticized or mocked or ridiculed them. Some people, the moment someone criticizes or mocks them, they're ready to throw up their hands. I'm done. I'm not doing that anymore. Not this church. So I'm learning from that. This is a determined church. It's an active church. It's an aggressive church. It's a determined church. I am impressed. Uh, we may place membership next week with this church. This is impressive. What an impressive group this is, but we're not through. It is a doctrinally correct church. Look at verse 2. I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. You've tested those who say they're apostles and are not and have found them liars. Look at verse 6, but this you have, you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. What am I learning about this church? They cannot bear evil men. Foy Wallace Jr. said the evil men were detected, convicted, and expelled. 
They found some in their group or found some that were influencing them that were false apostles. They were claiming the apostles and they were not and they exposed them and they expelled them. We're not tolerating that. Oh, I'm impressed when I hear this. When I start to place membership, they tell me, you know what we had to deal with last year? And I'm impressed with how they handled that. Wow, this is impressive. Look at verse 2. They expose false apostles, verse 2, and furthermore they hate the deeds and the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, the doctrine of compromise. What a strong church this is. This is a sound church, doctrinally. Now get the picture. Here are the strong qualities. Their works, their labor, their patience, they're an active church, they're an aggressive church, a determined church, and they are a sound church, doctrinally speaking. And that raises this question, what on earth could be wrong with such a church? If somebody said, no, wait, 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 just a minute, wait. Before you say you want to be a part of that, you might do a little more investigation. What could be wrong with this church? It's active, it's aggressive, it's determined, and they're doctrinally sound. Ray Summers said this, he said the entire commendation leaves one inclined to question if there could be anything wrong with such a church. It carried on its service in the face of difficulties. It rejected false teachers. It hated sin. It didn't grow weary in the Lord's work. What on earth could be wrong with such a church as that? Let's turn now and talk about its problem, verse 4. Verse 4 said this, nevertheless. The Lord used that expression back in Luke 5. Or Peter did, rather. Nevertheless. It's a word of contrast. Means in spite of, BDAC says. In spite of all of the good qualities we could say about this church, there's a problem. And what is it? Look at verse 4. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You have left your first love. Whatever that means, that's a problem. You've left your first love. Let's stop for a moment and talk about the place of love. Love has a place in the Lord's service. I don't think that means they don't love anymore, don't have any love anymore. Or that they didn't see any value in love. They've left their first love. Well, let's talk about the fact that love is essential. We ought to love God with all of our heart and all of our soul and all of our mind. Matthew 22 says. That's the first and the greatest commandment. We should love the truth. In order to love the truth. In order to love one another. In order to have brotherly love. So love is essential. Loving the Lord, loving the truth, loving one another. But I'm interested in the fact that love produces action. Evidence? Let's look at the context. Look at verse 4. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You left your first love. I don't know what that means maybe on the surface. So let's, let's see if we can figure out by looking at verse 5. Remember, therefore, from whence you are fallen and repent. And notice this. And do your first works. That tells me that love should have been active. Oh, yes, they've been an active church. They're not as active as they once were. Galatians 5 and verse 6 says, faith works by love. Love produces action. 
If they're missing in their love, something is missing in their action. This is the love of God that you keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. Love produces action. Let's add another principle about love to the mix. 1 Corinthians 13 says, Without love, we're nothing. Remember that passage, that great chapter on love? It's in the context of spiritual gifts. And you have the spiritual gift, but you're lacking in love, you're nothing. It doesn't matter what you can do. You can speak in tongues, it doesn't matter. I can interpret tongues, it doesn't matter. If you don't have love, you're nothing. Sounding brass and clanging cymbal, you're worthless. It means nothing. Now, this is important. Let's add another principle to the mix. Love and hate should be balanced. Should a Christian have love in their heart? Sure they should. Not for everything, though. There's some things we ought to hate. We ought to have hate in our hearts, too, for certain things. Let me give you an example of that. We ought to hate error. Look at verse 6. But this you have, you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. This is the Lord speaking. The Lord himself said, I hate that. And you do too, and I'm glad you do. You ought to have hate, but that ought to be balanced with loving the truth. Now what was the problem at Ephesus? The problem was they had left their first love behind. Go back and look at the wording of verse 4. But this I have against you, that you have left your first love. Summer suggests that means the honeymoon is over. Picturing their relationship with the Lord like we do in a marriage relationship. You get married and when you, have, you go on your honeymoon, you're just madly in love, but now the honeymoon's over. Summer says they were loyal but lacking. Huckwriter observed that in form this was still a sound church which fended all false doctrine, but the fire had gone out. There's more to serving God than an adherence to the mechanical traditional routine. In other words, their fire is gone. That's what he's saying. Their love and their enthusiasm and their excitement has vanished. Do you remember that group that brought all of their, their books and they burned them? That excitement, that zeal, that enthusiasm. It's not there anymore. Oh yeah, they had a rich history. Maybe some of the older heads that could remember, I remember, I was standing around that fire. I saw all that burn. And I saw all the enthusiasm of throwing your books into the fire because of their dedication for the Lord. I remember that. But they may be saying, I hadn't seen that fire in a long time. It's gone. It's not there anymore. I want to suggest to you that is a common problem. When we're not excited about being Christians... When we're not enthused about worshiping God, when going to church is just a routine uh, ritual we go through, we're not enthused about worshiping our God. We're not fervent in our actions. When we're not zealous for learning and for growing. Here is a church at Ephesus that was strong in one area but weak in another. They were strong in opposing sin and error. Any false apostles, they, they, they banished them. They found the deeds of the Nicolaitans. They hated it. But their love for what's right and for truth was not as strong as it should be. I want to suggest to you that we're often stronger in our opposition to wrong than we are for our love for what's right. I want you to get to that point. I want to say that again. 
We are often stronger in our opposition to wrong than we are in our love for what's right. Paul said in Romans 12 and in verse 9, it's not enough to abhor evil, but we must cling to that which is good. Abhor that which is evil and cling to that which is good. Should we hate sin? Yes. C.B. Baird said this, he said, they set out to be defenders of the faith. Arming themselves with the heroic virtues of truth and courage, only to discover that in the battle they had lost the one quality without which all others are worthless. Zeal for Christian truth may obliterate the one truth that matters that God is love. John is a rigorist who shares the hatred of the heresy which he attributed both to the church at Ephesus and to the church's Lord. But he recognized the appalling danger of a religion prompted more by hate than by love. I say, amen. I want to suggest to you that quite often we are stronger sometimes in our hatred here than we are in our love for what's on the other side. For example, there's some of us maybe hate and have a strong hatred for worldliness. You see drinking and you're ready to condemn it and sin and hate that. You see, immodesty, I hate that. We see uh, filthiness on the film, we hate that. Cursing, we hate that. And rightly so. But we may have a stronger hatred for worldliness than we do for developing godliness ourselves in our own life. While we don't tolerate the sin in our family, we may not be developing that godly character in our lives and in our children, in our family, and in our home. Well, we won't tolerate this over here, the sin. We don't have that in our home. But we may not be working on godliness. Sometimes we're stronger in opposing the sin than we are in our love for saving the sinner. Many of you have met R.J. Stevens. who put the songbook together we have in our pew. The man who's probably done more to encourage congregational singing among brethren in the last 50 years than anybody I know. But I shared the platform with him in a lectureship one time where we had a question and answer session and one of the questions came up something about singing and I heard him make this point I've never forgotten. He said, we are stronger in our opposition to instrumental music than we are in favor of congregational singing. In other words, if we rolled a piano in, most of all the church, if not everybody, would walk out the door or there would be chaos. Because we're not going to have instrumental music. And rightly so. We hate that. But we'll sit here and not open our mouth to sing a song. We're stronger in our opposition to instrumental music than we are in doing what the Lord said. Have we lost our love and our zeal for doing what's right? We sometimes are stronger in exposing someone in sin than we are in saving that brother. We're often stronger in our stand against the divorce than we are for saving marriage. We preach against divorce for some cause other than fornication, but we may not be working at all to try to make a marriage what it ought to be. We're stronger sometimes in our opposition to women's liberation. We wouldn't tolerate women being out of their role, but we may not be much for being a keeper at home, or that doesn't matter. We may say forsaking is a sin, but we may not be worshiping God. Here was a church that had strong hatred for sin and for error, but they were lacking something. 
Let's move now and talk about another point, and that is its future. I'm interested now. I'm kind of I'm looking at a different way at this church now. You see, I was impressed with their rich history. And I was impressed with their strong qualities, but now this kind of concerns me about their problem that I've noticed. And it makes me wonder about the future of this church. Is there any hope for this church? Do I give up on it? What do you see in this church? What I see is a church that's at its crossroads. Here's a church that's about to lose its identity. Look at verse 5. Remember, therefore, from which you are fallen, repent and do your first works, or else. I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Here's a church about to lose its identity. In other words, verse 5 said, if you don't change, I'm going to remove your lampstand. Soon you'll no longer be considered the Lord's church. There comes a time when it's no longer the Lord's church. Call it what you want. Call it a church of Christ. Call it a church, but there comes a point and there comes a time when it's no longer the Lord's church. The lampstand has been removed. What he's saying to this church, it is decision time. You can't stay in this law. You can't stay in this rut forever. Somebody said, we're, I feel like we're in a lull. I feel like we're in a rut. Five years later, we're, we're in a rut. We're, we're in a lull. Ten years later. You can't stay there forever. You've got to get out of that. That's what he's saying to this church. You've got to get out. But the problems are curable. They could be fixed. Notice again in verse 5. Remember therefore from which you have fallen and repent and do your first works. Notice what verse 5 does not say. It doesn't say I'm coming and removing your lampstand. He's saying I'm coming and removing your lampstand unless you repent. William Ramsey said this. Surely this milder denunciation, in this milder denunciation, we may see a proof that the evil in Ephesus was curable. But the cooling of the first Ephesian enthusiasm was a failing that lies in human nature. That failing can be corrected. The enthusiasm may be revived. There is hope. It can be fixed. Go back to verse 5 now. Look at verse 5. Remember therefore from which you are fallen and repent. That has to be a change. But before he mentions repentance, notice he said remember. Remember. Repentance is prompted by memory. I love this quotation from Hark Ryder. He said the lever of repentance is memory. No one ever who lived right and then goes wrong ever comes back to right without remembering something. Memory is the lever of repentance. Remember where you came from. Remember what you left. Remember what you used to do. Remember what the Lord said. Remember from whence you have fallen and repent. Repentance means to change your mind, 
And it's not only says do your first works, do what you used to do. I want to tell you, that's a simple formula. A simple formula that simply says, remember, repent, and return. Sometimes, listen to this carefully. People who've drifted away from the Lord and, the, and their fire is gone. This has happened more than once. On numerous occasions, someone comes to the elders, comes to me or whatever. And they say, I don't feel like I've, I've, I'm enthused about serving God like I used to be. What do I do? And they're looking for a magical formula. Maybe some complicated formula that, here's, here's this complicated formula. If you can work your way through it, it's going to be magical and it's all going to be revived. It's not magical at all. Here's what you do. Remember, repent, and start doing what you used to do. That's what you do. You say, I don't study like I used to. You know what you do? You remember how you used to study, and you repent and start studying again. It's not magical. Just do it. I, I, I don't feel like I pray like I used to. You know what you do? Remember how you used to pray? Repent. Start praying like you used to pray. Just start doing what you used to do. It's not magical. Just do it. That's all you do. What does this church need to do? Remember, repent, and change. Start doing what you used to do. You say, I don't feel close to people like I used to be. I, I used to do things for them. All right, what do you do? You, you remember and repent and start doing what you used to do. There's no magical formula. Just do it. Here's a church that left its first love. The church at Ephesus. You see, I was impressed at first. And then I got concerned. But when I got to the end of the letter, I realized I ought not give up on this church because there's hope. It, it can change. It can change. There's still hope for this church. I'm not going to give up on this one. There may be one I'll give up on before we get through with the seven churches, but not this one. I'm not ready to give up just yet because they can change. Maybe there's some things in this church you see that needs to change. Maybe it needs to change, but don't give up. It can change. What have we seen in this church? Here's a church that left its first love. It's a church whose fire has gone out. Had a rich history, great strong qualities in this church. Had a problem, though, fire was gone. What about its future? They're at a crossroads. They're going to have to make a change. Or soon there's going to be the removing of their lampstand. There may be one or more present who's not a Christian, who's not a child of God. Would you come believing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God? Would you repent of your sins, acknowledge your faith, and be buried in the waters of baptism for the remission of sins? If you're subject in any way, would you come while together we stand and while we sing?